please stand. in God the Father Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. The text for the sermon this day will be taken from that reading from Acts and the Old Testament. You may be seated. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. That reading from Ezekiel, it's one of the cooler readings, or amazing readings, of scriptures. Because you have this image, this event, where Ezekiel is led out to this valley. And this valley is, well as it says, full of bones. And these bones were very dry, letting you know that they had been there for a very long time. And he is told to prophesy over these bones. And he does. And these bones, and I love the text gives this wonderful detail about the rattling and the sinews and the flesh coming upon the bone. And then he prophesies over again, again over it, and they receive breath 
and they rise up an exceedingly great army. Now, just to kind of get one thing out of the way, the word prophesy does not always mean predicting the future. Prophesy, to prophesy in the scriptures can just simply mean to proclaim the word of God. To proclaim God's word makes you a prophet, in a sense. Now, if you start saying, well, I prophesy the Vikings will win the Super Bowl. I like that prophecy, but I'm going to be doubtful of it. But that is not, that is not a true, you're not that kind of a prophet. Whenever you say anything about what is in the scriptures, confess it, tell it to others, you are a prophet. In fact, when you guys just said the creed, you just were prophets a few minutes ago. You're prophesying. So, with that in mind, I'm going to look at, there's a book that I've been reading this week. And I'm only a few chapters in. I'll get back to reading more of it. It's written by Pastor Jonathan Fisk. And the name of the book is called Echo. And I really, really recommend it. It's kind of a covert catechism. I love it. You don't realize it. I didn't realize it until two or three chapters in. I'm like, hey, this is the small catechism. But anyways, there's a couple quotes I thought were just really, really good. He says... No matter how much you actually do believe there is a God, you still don't want to. Because believing there is a God means that you are not him. And then another quote, I love this, it's kind of the, it's basically the natural creed of all of us. So we just confess the Apostles' Creed. Well, this is what the creed we would actually prefer to believe in. Me might not be almighty, but me is important. More important than them, more important than God, God too. When it comes down to it, of course, me is not physically everything, but me is spiritually everything. But me, even if me is not God, isn't God, me should be God. Even if me isn't God, me will act like I am God anyway. And I, I like that because it hits right to the very core of our sinful nature. Hits very, right to the very first temptation to Adam and Eve. That they would become like God. And so the temptation and the desire to be God is the long-lasting one we've had throughout the years. And so, for example, so when we hear, so back in the 1800s, there were, <coughs> excuse me, people like Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, God is dead. There were people such as Charles Darwin, who, came, who wrote up the theory of evolution. The reality, and so in the 1800s, they were all trying so hard to disprove that God exists. Because the reason ultimately we want this, the reason we want a creation that could be done apart from God, that is just a series of explosions and a series of accidents, then we could say there is no God. And if there is no God, who really is God? Me. I get to be God. And I get to decide how I live and the way I want to be, and no one can tell me otherwise. 
And by the way, every time somebody says, who are you to tell me how to live? Or who, it doesn't matter how I live, I can live the way I want. That is ultimately us trying to make ourselves our own God. We do anything and everything we can to hitch on to any way we can become our own God. But the problem is, is that we see the news. We see the world around us. For example, we see what happened in Texas on Friday. There's a shooting that happens at a high school. Now, when people see that shooting on TV, they don't go, oh, huh, interesting, keep going. They'll go, yeah, that's just the way it happens. It's just, it's just natural, it happens. Because, I mean, honestly, if you are 100% evolutionist, if you're, if you're an evolutionist, and you're consistent in your beliefs about evolution, then you when you see a shooting on TV, when you saw that school shooting, you say, oh, hmm, that's about as natural as the fact that the grass is green in the summer. It just happens. Those kids, they die because they're weak. Because the very core of evolution is survival of the fittest. The reason why anyone ever dies is because they're weak no matter how it happens. The reason why anyone's a victim of something is they're weak. If you're truly a 100% consistent evolutionist, you, cannot have, you don't have a real reason to be moral. The only reason to do the right thing is self-preservation. Although it's not really right because there's no such thing as the right thing. It's just the smart thing, I guess. But the thing is, like I said, a shooting like that happens and you're startled and you are reminded, hey, may, there's, there's a such thing as evil. Which is why you will have people protesting and declaring all different things as to what we need to do to stop these shootings. Because that's the rhetoric all across TV. What are we going to do to keep these from happening? And the very fact that they're saying this is admitting, even though many of the people are saying this, they won't ever say it, but subconsciously they are admitting there is a God. They're admitting that there is a such thing as evil. Because otherwise the entire discussion is pointless that there's no such thing as evil. And so when we realize there is a God... We try to convince ourselves that we can reach him. So what we do is we try to make God a little bit more like us every single day. Or we try to make him a little bit more similar to us, to think that we could grasp him. Well, next Sunday is Trinity Sunday, so let's... How many of you think by next week you could get the Trinity down? Totally comprehend how the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods but one God? How it is that Jesus, while being God, could say to God the Father, why have you forsaken me? How it is that Jesus, who is God, was abandoned by God the Father, and yet there was, only, there was still only one God? Anybody got that one down? I don't. And if anybody raised their hand, oh yeah, God, I'm going to go, liar! <laughs> so... Or you're not thinking it through very much. But the thing is, we want God to be easy and accessible. But then we, but we realize we can't do that. 
And so then we convince ourselves that maybe we could work ourselves to God. The problem is, one, is the distance between us and God is of cosmic level. It's not like, you know, from us to, you know, just the other side of the room. It's more like from us to another galaxy is the distance to God. You cannot, and even if, even included in that is, what is it between me right now and the, and the street? A wall. Because not only is there a huge distance between us and God, there is a giant divide in there, and it's a wall. And here's the thing. What we think we could do is, okay, all we need to do is, you know, tie up our bootstraps, pull it up, and we're going to go run right at it, put the full effort at it, and I could get through that wall. By the way, no one try that, that idea out. But that is what we do. We think that we can work our way towards God, that we could do enough good deeds, or we could be impressive enough to God that we can approach Him, but in reality, we are just like a person thinking that if he just runs harder against the wall, he'll get through, when in reality, he's just going to have a broken neck. Or we might say, well, you know, if I just have the right feelings, if I just feel a certain godness, if I have a good sense of God, then if, if I have the right attitude, maybe I can get through that wall. It doesn't matter your attitude. It doesn't matter your effort. You're going through, you're going to hit that wall. You're going to be unconscious and possibly break something. But see, all of that is ultimately, again, our attempt to make ourselves at the very minimum on God's level. We try any and every way we can to make ourselves a God. We even do this in worship. So next Sunday, in case you do not know, services go to 9 o'clock. So we only have one service on Sunday morning. It'll be 9 o'clock, and it's worship roulette, as I've been terming it. So you don't know if it's going to be contemporary or traditional. And so inevitable, you're going to have people that are going to say, they're going to come in, and they might hear the band playing. Like, I'm going to turn right around, I'm going back home. Or on the flip side, and I've heard both sides of these, by the way, People will say, well, if I hear that organ, I'm going right home. We will complain about the style of worship. We will complain about the hymns that we sing. In other words, and note when I say hymn, there is a good reason to complain about hymns. Content. If the content of the hymn is not in accord with what we confess, then you have a really good reason to complain about it. That's actually when you're supposed to complain. But if you're complaining because it's not, quote, the good old-fashioned hymns, which I always find funny when people say the old-fashioned hymns, I'm like, how old does it have to be to be old-fashioned? Because we, play, we sing 5th century hymns, and you complain they're not old-fashioned, like, how great thou art. And I'm like, how great thou art was written in the 1950s. It's 1,400 years newer. It's contemporary compared to some of our other hymns that are not considered the good old-fashioned hymns. So, not, nothing wrong with how great thou art. I'm just poor. That's usually one of those distinctions I can make. But the thing is, when we, I want you to understand this. When Pat, myself or Pastor Salcedo prepare a service, 
when we have the scripture readings laid out, we have the hymns that are selected, we are not picking our favorite scripture readings every weekend. We are not picking our favorite hymns every weekend. Now, that's not to say we don't like some of the hymns, but honestly, the way we pick it up, the way the, script, the scripture readings that you heard today, if you went to another church, if you went over to St. John and Battle Creek, if you went over to Trinity and Odebolt, because I'm pretty certain they're on the three-year lectionary as well, they will have heard the exact same scripture readings as you did. And in fact, if you went to the Catholic Church, they very likely heard the same scripture readings. If you went to the Methodist Church, they very likely heard the same scripture readings as you did. Because it is a part of what is called the Revised Common Lectionary. It is shared behind, between a multitude of denominations across the world. And you know what's even more? If you went to St. John Battle Creek, if you went to Trinity and Odebolt, if you went to Schleswig, if you went to Denison, you probably would hear the same hymns. Because they are all reflection of the same scripture readings. See, the reality is, is when we complain about the service because maybe it goes a little too long, and I bring up that one every now and then because that still comes up to me. Complain is too long. I always, I always get interested when you hear, listen to Gary Teese, and he talks about churches in Africa where they'd have three-hour-long services, and the people would come up to the pastor and say, is that all we get? As if three hours isn't enough. And yet we complain if it goes a minute over an hour. When we complain about style, when we complain about what hymns we're singing, not about the fact, we're not, like I said, not doctrinal. Doctrinal complaint is good. But when we complain just because it's not what I like, guess what we are doing? We are making ourselves into God again. Becomes the reason why we come to worship is not to hear about the triune God, but to satisfy me. That is what we always do. See, the reality is, is that text in Ezekiel, that valley of dry bones, that is you. You are the dry bones. I am in that dry bones. We are like the crowd that was standing before Peter on Pentecost, who he said to them, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. See, Peter began in that reading, we heard it earlier, 
that he said that your sons and daughters will prophesy. He's not saying that your sons and daughters are going to predict the future. He's saying your sons and daughters are going to declare to you the word of God. And this is the nation of Israel. They too, dry bones, dead. Evidenced by the fact that only 53 days earlier, they said, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And here, 53 days later, they hear the law of God proclaimed to them. And they are cut to the heart. And then they hear the sweetness, the promise of the forgiveness of sins through the waters of baptism. And on account of that, they become alive. 3,000, an exceedingly great army. So also us, we are born as those dry bones. We are born dead. And so until one day somebody brought you to the font and the pastor sat, prophesied over you, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And you received the Holy Spirit. And you who were dry bones became alive. And then again, throughout your life, every, because the reality is, is that that deadness that is in us, it's like a, it's like a bad, and I know this, this is something people know very well, it's like a bad cancer. It just, sometimes, it just keeps coming back. Our sinful nature is like that. It just keeps crawling back, trying to turn us back into those dry bones. And so we come again and again and again, to hear his word, to receive his holy supper, in which you hear the prophecy, take, eat, this is the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Take, drink, this is the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you partake of that, you, your dry bones are made alive again. All by that confession, that every time you hear those words, in whatever variety it is, but you hear a basic theme is that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and on the third day rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That he did that in order to conquer sin, death, and the devil. That you have received the forgiveness of sins by his death. That you have the guarantee of life. Every time you hear that gospel, your dry bones become alive. And one day it will be that you will be lying in a casket. In a grave somewhere. Or maybe you'll be ash scattered in a lake, wherever. And Jesus is going to be walking, Jesus himself is going to be walking about. And he is going to prophesy and say, O oh, child of God, wake up. The resurrection is now. And your dry, literally dried bones will rise up a glorious body. Remember, dry bones, they can't do anything for themselves. They can't do anything to save themselves. Our, seek, our desire to be our own God is the evidence of that deadness. And so it takes literally an act of God to save us. The work of the Holy Spirit 
in baptism, in the proclamation of the word, in the receiving of the Lord's Supper, by the Holy Spirit's work, in his means of grace, dead bones, which are you, become alive. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Amen. At this time, we continue with the gathering of our offerings. 